Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, coming off the All-Star break, plenty to talk about as we get back to it, right? You know, I, I, I thank the Lord we don't have Thursday night football to talk about, <laughs> but why are you wasting your time talking to me? We got a much more fun person to talk to. Let's go. All right, let's get it. All right. She's called games across multiple sports on radio and TV. She's the voice of the Philadelphia 76ers, going to be calling World Cup action this summer for the women. Welcome to the show, Kate Scott. Kate, so glad we can get some time with you today. Same here. It's great to see you guys. Thanks for having me on. You know, Kate, uh, we were going to start with World Cup, but we're going to start with Sixers first today. (laughs) Before we get to your thoughts on the Sixers, what has it been like for you to take over the role that you have with the Sixers and become the voice uh, of the city? Oh, I'm still pinching myself, Jeff. Every time I hear somebody say that, um, I I still don't believe it. And it has been truly better than I ever could have imagined it being. Um, I knew it was going to be a huge mountain to climb, um, taken over for a legend, born and raised in Philly, like Mark Zumoff. And as you guys, I'm sure know, he has been such a supporter of mine behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, all over the place. I mean, it, I, I knew it was going to be hard and fans, understandably, as I expected them to be, were, were hard the first number of months I was here, but uh, they've come around a lot quicker than I expected them to. And Philly feels like home already after two seasons. I'm so excited about season three. And I also can't believe that we're already in season three. Um, so, so yeah, it's been wonderful and and i can't wait for this fall it seems like you embraced replacing zoom off coming in and the passion that you bring to calling a game seems to kind of fit in with the city what's the reaction been like you've talked about how you expected it to be a process to be accepted yeah. talk to oh, us no you are not allowed to use the word process i, I don't believe i actually used <laughs> no, that because i said I that, knew but that but as soon as i said i know as soon as i said that people were gonna be like go back to california you idiot <laughs> um but yeah i knew i knew regardless of who took over for Mark Zumoff, it was going to be a a while and it was going to be a journey because he was the voice for 27 years. And you guys know he was with the team for 40. So he was, he was so many different generations of Sixers fans person when they thought of the Sixers. So regardless change, even if it was another white dude from Philly who took over for him, it was going to be a change. And all of a sudden, (laughs) as I've said in a lot of interviews, here's this gay chick from California. Like what's up Sixers fans. How's it going y'all? Let's go. <laughs> um, but uh, I know from being a first in a lot of places before I got here in Philly, y- you can't tell people to accept you. And I knew that it was going to be a massive change because I'm sure a lot of Sixers fans had never heard a woman call anything, period. And now all of a sudden, it's a female voice calling their beloved Sixers like, whoa, that that would make my brain explode. So I knew all I had to do was be myself and do the work each and every day. I knew that I was going to get more and more comfortable with each broadcast and that hopefully over time, people would soften in their stance to the newbie and understand that my excitement, as you mentioned, like this is just me all the time. And I know for some people, it's still a lot. Uh, But the folks at NBC, that's what they wanted, obviously. Same with the Sixers. They know that we're moving kind of into a new generation when it comes to broadcasters. And they were like, look, we love your energy. We know some people are going to give you a hard time about it. We're just (laughs) keeping you settle in. Um, You know, we're hoping this is a long-term thing. So deal with the struggles of the first couple of seasons. 
Titans. And yeah, that's just another reason excited for season three. You know, the one thing is it doesn't seem like there was a learning curve with you and Allah. Like, mm-hmm. did you know Allah beforehand? And how how easy was it for you two to develop a rapport? No, oh, thank you for saying that. Uh, no, I did not know Allah at all. I didn't even audition with Allah because he was sick the day I auditioned, which of course me being an overanalyzer, I was like, oh, this dude doesn't want me to be his partner. He's not even coming to the audition. Uh, but no, he was really sick actually. So I auditioned with Mark Jackson and Mark and I are buds now, obviously since that day, but you never know because I've called, as you mentioned, so many different sports with so many different uh, analysts and partners. And if you're lucky, you just click with them. And other times they're professional, you're professional and you do the best job of faking it on air. (laughs) Um, But with Allah, literally the moment I met him at the Sixers practice facility, five minutes in, I thought, oh my gosh, again, I am so lucky. I had no idea who this guy was going to be. And I could tell instantly that there was going to be a connection between us. So I'm so glad that that's coming out over the air. And I know that it's just going to get better and better. I mean, we went to a a ball game. We went to a Phil's game a couple of weeks ago with our ladies. And so we're truly, we're truly friends on and off the air and probably spend way too much time talking on flights. I'm like, it's 3 a.m., but I got, I got to finish this board and go to bed. This is a back to back, like stop telling me about those days when you were playing in Portland, but yeah, really lucky and excited to see how that continues to grow too. Those are probably fun stories that you get to hear though. They're so fun. (laughs) Talk about this, this journey that you're on though. Now all of a sudden, I mean, you've had a wild ride here for the first two years. All of a sudden the Sixers are making lots of changes in their organization. So talk to us about what you're seeing with your broadcaster hat on now as you prep for year three with Mm -hmm. lots of changes that probably won't look a lot like it did in year one and two. Yeah, this is uh, as uh, my now retired producer, J.R. Aquila, who was producing the Sixers broadcast for 40 years, love you, J.R., said, um, my rookie hazing is now complete. He's like, you've officially had your heart broken by a Philadelphia sports team. Yes. We all, as I'm sure you guys saw, I yes. was, they had the talent. They had the talent to get past the seas. Obviously they didn't. Sports, hashtag sports. Um, but uh, I experienced this every four years at the collegiate level, which is what I was calling a lot before I came here. So yeah, this is my first taste of pro sports when you don't make it as far as you wanted, even though it was a successful season in some people's eyes. And that means everybody's out. New coaching staff, all, all the time and relationships that you spent time building over the past couple of years. See ya. And now you got to start fresh again. Um, so I think it was good for me because this is the life of a professional sports broadcaster. You got to get used to those changes. Um, and yeah, I'm very intrigued. I mean, I, I'm almost done reading Nick Nurse's book. He was, he was the coach out of all the really good free agent coaches that were out there this offseason that I was hoping the Sixers would get just because of the way his team seemed to really frustrate Joel Embiid and the Sixers. It's kind of that if you can't beat them, join them sort of thing, even though I know we knocked them off in my first year. But um, so I'm very intrigued to see what he and the people he brings in and whatever players are here when the season tips off in October um, to see what this next iteration of the Sixers looks like. Okay, you've got all of this energy and all this positivity and you said you've now experienced Philadelphia sports. Uh-huh. Jason yeah. can tell Jason could talk about it more than anybody. It's a constant heartbreak. I, I was shaped by the pain, Kate. Yeah. Well, and that's what I, I try. I try to tell people and I know it's different because it was in a different city, but the teams that I grew up cheering for broke my heart over and over again. Like I'll never forget where I was in 2002 when my San Francisco Giants were going to win their first World Series since moving from Brooklyn and then Dusty comes out and takes the ball from Russ Ortiz and now the rally monkeys go like, you know, I had my heart broken by the Giants. I had my, I grew up cheering for the 49ers. I had my heart broken by them when I'm 
number of times uh, growing up. I hate the I hate the Dallas Cowboys, just like you. Oh, guys we're do. there with you. We're all good. I hate the, well, that's been the fun thing. Like so many of the teams I hated growing up, we hate here in Philadelphia too. So that's been a very easy. Now thing. that makes you a Philadelphia. Right? Hating like, other sports teams. Hated. I was like, wait, <laughs> I get to say Dallas sucks here too. This is awesome. Are you kidding me? I we sell t shirts. I, I hated the Cowboys. This is great. We sell t shirts with that on it. <laughs> <laughs> and people have been like, now, now, Kate, you're the voice of a team. Maybe you need to say like Dallas stinks because some kids are looking up to you. Maybe using sucks isn't. I'm like, okay. this is Philadelphia. You can say Dallas sucks. Did you not hear what Chase Utley said when they won the World Series? <laughs> oh, I heard it. I heard it. That also um, became a shirt. So, so yeah, this. Uh, I had my heart broken a number of times growing up, but but I think there is something different when that's one of the, my favorite parts of sports, the collective experience, right? So the fact that I got to uh, have my heart broken along with so many Sixers fans. I feel like even more people accepted me after that. They were like, see, they got her hopes up too and smashed them to bits and now she's depressed. So Kate, you're one of us now. Come on in. <laughs> did, did you, when you got here, you said that there was a little backlash. W what did you attribute the backlash to? Did you think that it, it was just taking over from a legend or, or did you feel any of the backlash? Hopefully the answer is no, but feel any backlash because of your background? Yeah, um, I think it was mostly just because I was new and a different voice. And I think uh, a very small bit of the backlash was because of who I am. Um, but but I tried uh, very honestly and candidly to explain on social media that that's not a Philadelphia thing um, because I've done firsts in a lot of stops before here. Now, granted, it wasn't uh, on a long-term basis. You know, it was calling an NHL game for NBC. It was calling some 49ers games. It was being the first woman on sports radio in San Francisco. But all those experiences helped teach me that, yeah, it's you, but it's really just what you represent and the fact that you're a different voice and that change is really hard for everybody, not, not just in sports, like <laughs> in anything. Think about moving to a new house. Think about going to a new school. Think about playing for a new team. It's just hard because it's uncomfortable and it's different. Um, so, so I think that the majority of that was I wasn't Mark Zumoff. And I know that there's still people who feel that way. And again, getting back to what I said earlier, I completely understand that. Uh, sorry, not sorry that I'm who I am. But even even Zoo told me, he's like, Kate, if they wanted another Zoo, they would have hired another bald dude with glasses. But they they hired a chick with glasses. So they wanted you. So be you. So well, at I, least you both had glasses. Yeah, you're all. So, you, know, you, you talk about the first. You, you're the only woman that's done play-by-play -play for the NFL, NHL, NBA, college football, and the Olympics. Have you processed the, the barriers that you're breaking as you go through this? Or just kind of look back and it's like, hey, I did that. Cool. And are, and are you done with sports or are you going to do pickleball? Guys? Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious that you bring that up. I, one of the young women I mentored actually has started calling pickleball. Get out. But, but no, I mean, uh, Jason, I haven't. Um, I try to slow down occasionally because my friends and family tell me to like, Kate, look at what you've done. But I, I'm not here talking to you guys, calling Sixers games, getting ready to do the World Cup. If I was that person, I think if I sat back and I was like, yeah, look at me, look at all I've accomplished because it's always, okay, what's the next thing? Because I just, I love getting better as a broadcaster. I love challenging myself. I love saying, okay, that's what I've done. What can I do next? Um, and a big part of it is just because that's who I am and I love what I do. And I think just like athletes and coaches, you always want to get better and keep challenging yourself and see what the next step is you can take. But also um, it's so important to me to make as much change in this industry as I can uh, before I hang up the microphone, because uh, I've seen so much change in the 20 years since I started. Um, just 
seen those of us calling and covering sports reflecting more and more the the athletes who play our sports, the people who cheer for the sports, and just just trying to do the best to show the people who are doing the hiring, uh, the people who are watching and listening to sports that if you work really hard and are prepared, just like all the zoos before me, and like you guys, like all the all the white guys that I've worked with, <laughs> I'm not here without you. I love working with you. Um, but we can take the same steps that that you all have, and then hopefully be prepared and ready for that opportunity. And that's been the most important thing to me. And I try to try to preach that. Like you never want to just hire someone because they're chick, uh, because you're setting them up for failure. They have to be prepared and ready for that opportunity because oftentimes you have to be better than somebody else who might've gotten it because of all the outside of the sport calling stuff that you have to do. Um, so, so yeah, it is wild. I, I haven't wrapped my head around it. Sometimes I, I've had to think about it a lot because I've been doing a lot of interviews recently and it's like, man, no wonder I'm so tired. And, and, <laughs> no wonder it was hard to get out of bed because I've worked really hard, but, but I'm really happy to be here and really excited about what the future holds. And you mentioned being a mentor. I mean, we talk to athletes a lot about using the platform that they have and here you are being able to pay it forward, trying to be that role model and mentor that you were looking for as you were getting into the sport. What does that side of it mean to you? Not just the barriers you break, but the people you're bringing along with you who now will be able to succeed because they're working through you, with you, around you, with people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's another indicator that I'm getting old and I kind of love it. <laughs> like I was always the young kid. I was always about 10 years younger than everybody I was working with. And some, some flip switch or some switch flipped in the last like two years. And all of a sudden I'm working, I call them my minis or my minions and they're just kind of around, but uh, it is so important to me because I just, I get so much joy seeing other people reach their dreams. And it's crazy to me already how much the industry, as I mentioned, has changed in, I've been in it now over 20 years, but in the last 10 years, especially like I, I was mentoring a ton of young men, uh, when it came to play by play. And over the last five years, so many women have started coming to me saying I played a collegiate sport and I've been doing analyst work, but I really, I'm interested in play by play. Can we talk about it? Can we get into that? So that gives me so much joy, but yeah, I, I mentor everybody, men, women, um, everybody in between, because I just really want to support young people who really love this are really kind. So those are the important things to me are going to put in the work because this is a really difficult job because so many people want to do it. I'm getting paid to, to call the events that so many people are paying to be at themselves to attend. And that's what I try to remind the young kids that I mentor in. Um, and yeah, I'm, they're starting to move up in the industry and their wins bring me so much joy because it means that we're all doing something right. So uh, I don't have any kids of my own, but I feel like, I feel like I have kids all over the country who are slowly working their way up, whether it be in play-by-play or analyst work or sideline work or anchoring. So it's it's been really cool to keep an eye on the next generation. You know, we've talked to, to many of your colleagues, including Kate Fagan. How important is it to have that community of women commentators or women in sports so that we get to a point where it's just second hat, that it's not a big deal, that there's so yeah. many of you that it, it's just it's just part of the sport? Yeah, it's, uh, it's so important to have that community. And I'm, I don't know if you all can see it, but I have one of Kate's many books um, behind me on the bookshelf. She's one of my best friends. Kate's stick together, not just because of our names, but um, that's been another really cool change that I've seen over about the past decade. Um, and I know that other groups of women are doing this in their respective areas and states, but uh, I got to be very close with a number of women at the PAC 12 network, which is, was one of my main gigs before I moved out 
to Philly a couple of years ago, and we had all had difficult times finding female mentors when we were starting about 20 years ago, because the industry was telling us there can only be one of you and you're all competing for one job. So that impacted a bunch of us. And we realized now that we were starting to be the people who the next generation was looking to, we really wanted to flip that and show the next generation of young women that we are doing this together and there is space for all of us. And you just have to be good and support each other and doors will open. So that's been really cool. And then moving back here to Philly, you guys already know so many of the most famous women when it comes to sports broadcasting, um, Leslie Visser and Susie Colber and Lisa Salters and Andrea Kramer and Beth Mullins, like they're all from around here somewhere. Um, and it's been really important to me since my career started and even more so now that it's gained some visibility to make all of those women proud because they're the ones who really had to <laughs> put up with it. As we'll say, uh, like it was hard for them to do their jobs because sometimes the players and coaches they were trying to cover didn't want anything to do with them. So when I now talk about some online hate, you know, <laughs> whereas all the players and coaches I'm, I'm covering come up to me and tell me, you know, what do you need? Anything I can do to help you succeed, Kate? So yeah, it just gets back to that community. Uh, trying to pay it forward with the next generation coming up, trying to make the generation that came before me proud and and trying to trying to tie it all together too. It's a lot. I obviously think about this way too much, but yeah, it's really important to me so that hopefully, um, Jeff, in, in a few years, it'll just be, who's the best broadcaster for this? Yes, they sound great. We're really excited to have them here. Well, in the meantime, since our hearts were broken by the Sixers losing, you decided, you know what? I don't need a summer vacation. No. So, <laughs> so instead of taking a summer vacation, you decide, you know what? Let's go do some World Cup games. Oh. What is the? What are you looking forward to most in that? Jeff, I'm, I'm stupid is what it comes down to. We were talking before we came on air, but I'll say it on air. My wife's been telling me I'm stupid for a number of years and now just proving it again. Yes. Uh, just like Tyrese Maxey and Joel are back in the lab, I am back in the lab this summer as well. Um, but yeah, I grew up playing soccer. I thought when I was a young girl that I was going to be the next star of the U.S. Women's National Team. I was actually in the Rose Bowl in 99 when they kind of shifted the sports world for women. Uh, and I thought that's going to be me. I'm going to be sporting the red, white, and blue. And then I tore my meniscus in high school and started my broadcasting journey. So uh, soccer has been in my blood since I was a young girl. So now to get the chance to to call it is a dream come true. And I also was showing you guys some of the crazy just boards and names and everything. But I'm really excited because it's expanded. So 32 countries for the first time in the Women's World Cup. Uh, a lot of countries who were there for the first time and because of that are going after U.S.-born players that are also, you know, have dual nationality to play for their teams. So Ireland is one of the potential Cinderella's of this tournament. They've made it for their first time. And a couple of their players are from Pennsylvania because they have Irish heritage. So a lot of the coaches, you know, from Ireland, the Philippines, all these other countries. So that's what I love because um, I flash back to me in 99, falling in love with this and wanting to follow the U.S. Women's National Team. And I can just see this happening in so many other countries who are at their first world. World Cup this time around. And I'm, you know, flashing the little girls in front of a TV in Vietnam, seeing superstars who are then going to come home and play pro in their country. So uh, I'm excited about how much it's grown since I was a little girl, the reach and the potential of this tournament. And then also the U.S. trying to do something that's never been done before, win a third World Cup in a row, men or women. 
And so it's going to be awesome. And if that's not going to keep you busy enough, you decided, ah, you know what? I'll call some football too. See? Stupid. I told you, Jason, stupid. Which isn't new for you. Again, at first, you were the first woman to call an NFL game on the radio. You've covered preseason NFL games. How excited are you to get to call some football games later this summer after you finish with football? (laughs) (laughs) From one football to another football. Uh, Yeah, as you guys can tell, I get bored easily. But, uh, But I love calling all the sports. I really think that they inform each other. They all have different verbiage and different pacing and stuff. But I learned something about myself as a broadcaster, getting back to always wanting to get better. And I love calling football. I mean, I had to miss a couple of Sixers game at the start of my first season because I was calling a national college football package with Mike Golick. And it's so fun. Uh, and when the NFL comes calling, you you don't really say no. I know a lot of a lot of Eagles fans are giving me a hard time. They're like, well, at least the Seahawks are a bird. So we can we can give you that. Um, but Wait, who, who made that argument? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody on social media. And I was like, yeah, yeah I'm going to steal that one. I like that. I felt bad. You didn't even get to celebrate it because it came out and people thought you were leaving broadcasting the Sixers <laughs> to go broadcast the Seahawks. Oh my gosh. Thank you for noticing that. I, oh, this is, you, you don't get to be mean anymore when you're, uh, this is somebody in my position, but yeah, the sports business journal definitely tweeted out like the new voice of the Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> you forgot, you forgot an important word preseason, y'all. But uh, getting back to that, like it was, it was so cool to see so many Sixers fans kind of freaking out. No, you can't leave us yet. As we were talking about a year after, uh, they had been like, go back to California. We don't want you here. So that was, uh, some weird blessing in disguise, but yeah. So I love Colin football preseasons again, stupid hard. There's 90 guys on a roster. You guys know as opposed to 52. <laughs> so, um, it's going to be a lot of work just if prepping for 13 countries in the world cup wasn't enough. Um, but I, I want to keep those tools sharp just because you never know what the future holds. So we'll see. What do you see for the U S women's team for this world cup? Mm, I don't think it's going to be as easy as past world cups have been. It's a transitionary time. No Carly Lloyd, right? Um, yeah. Megan Martino's on her last legs. Uh, there's some young, incredible superstars. We're definitely seeing the Alex Morgans and Megan Rapinos of the future in this world cup, but how do those two generations mold together? Cause we've seen that it can be hard. Um, you know, I think <laughs> golden state warriors when it comes to the NBA are a great example. Like how do you get these aging out stars and the next generation and, and mold them together? So, and, and because of the standard that the U S set back in 99, all the other countries have been catching up. So, uh, keep an eye on Sweden. They've won silver at the last couple of Olympic games. They've come really close to knocking off the U S. Um, and there's some other countries, Spain, Canada, won gold at the Olympics in Tokyo, knocking off the U S. So the talent level in some of the big countries across the world has really risen over the last 20 plus years. So the U S has the most individual talent, but, uh, can they put it together and find that chemistry in order to win? I don't think it's going to be easy by any means. Normally Jeff would ask the food question, but I'm going to have to ask, you have a favorite food in the city since coming here? You cheesesteak lady? Yeah. Um, all of it. You oh. all didn't warn me about the fact that there's a freshman 15 and there's a Philly 15, <laughs> which, which would have been fine if I was doing radio for the Sixers. <laughs> but uh, but definitely by about December, January of that first season, I was like, why are my pants so tight? Why? <laughs> this blouse is fitting different than it did before. Uh, that's what I tell people. There's so much good food 
food and drink in Philly. And as you guys may know, like I'm a beer girl, I'm a, I'm an all the things girl. So I'm not going to say no to a, a drink or, or some food. So do you guys have recommendations? Cause I've been to, you know, a lot of the big places in the city and they're all delicious, but no, nobody's paying me. So I don't want to give anybody any uh, shout out. Do you guys have somebody? Go ahead, Jeff, give some recommendations. You uh, live in this no, city. I'm not, no. Cause I'm not going to be responsible for the Philly 15. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth it though. But even all the big ones, uh, Cholula's Garden, Zahav, um, Laser Wolf, I know, which is an uh, offshoot of... Um, see, and, and, and that's how market. we know we're talking to somebody who's beloved in the city, because most of us can't get in those restaurants. <laughs> oh, but it hasn't been me either. It's been other friends. They're like, let us use your name. I'm like, nobody cares about me. You, you Park, uh, Rouge, so many places. Oh, yeah, we- see, you're getting in before the 9.15 last slot. Oh, yeah. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, shout out to them for winning a James Beard. So can you can you tell that I love food? Um, You'll enjoy Reading Terminal Market too. Go walk around there and have fun. Oh, I, I have. I think that was a big reason for the Philly 50. Oh, okay. Well, see, Jeff, through, I'm jumping right in on on. You can go through all three that. meals of the day in the span of about an hour and 15 minutes. So, but yeah, love the food here in Philly. All right. Before we let you go, because you have a lot of names to learn. <laughs> Are we getting past the second round next year? Oh my gosh. Uh, who's on the team? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> and, that, and if, that, that's and if the they're... question we have to ask every day. That's the, every time we have one of the beat writers on there, like, I can't get on the phone yet because I don't know what's going on. And if I they're know, on the... wanted to do a Sixers preview the other day, and I was like, I have no idea what the team is going to look like. And it's July. If they're on the team in September, will be on. Will they be on the team in March and April? <laughs> Who knows? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It could look completely different from now to October. And then, as you mentioned, from October to February. So uh, I, I can't make any guarantees this year, but I will guarantee you guys that we're we're going to get there at some point in my Sixers tenure. I, I don't know what it's going to be. <laughs> well, how, how do you how do you prep for that though? I mean, I, I know that you pray need to do a, a lot. ton of prep now, but but this I've got to think of all the teams that you've covered. This might be the hardest one to prep for before the season starts because we don't know what's going on. Yeah, well, and that's why I was like, I'm just going to distract myself by calling World Cup and, and see how it's preseason because <laughs> I I don't want to spend time. But I was actually updating my board a little bit yesterday, adding Patrick Beverly and adding Mo Bamba and putting Paul Reed back on there, which is great. And I was actually looking at my board. I was kind of intrigued. Again, this is July. So who knows who's on the team in October? But I was like, okay, Patrick Beverly was always that dude who you hated on opposing teams. And yeah, he's on his last legs, but I've heard really good things behind the scenes. Um, PJ Tucker was huge for the guys last year. Hopefully PJ will play less minutes. Tyrese is just going to get better. Joel's just going to get better. Art Tobias and James still here. We don't know. Paul Reed made a, took a huge step last year. He's, he's just going to get better. And he's the type of player that Nick Nurse likes to use really long athletic guys who can, who can run. So I was like, Oh, try not, try not to get excited about this, but, but some, some good pickups, even though they're quiet. And, and we all saw Mo, obviously a Westchester guy, but who went off, went back and forth with Joel, um, bomb and threes in my first season. So some intriguing pickups. So no guarantees, but I'm, I'm intrigued. Well, here's my last question. So you said earlier that, um, you get, you get bored very easily. Yeah. When do you have time to get bored? And do you ever allow yourself just a little bit of time to get? Bored? Oh, I need to. Um, yeah, Jeff, I'm, I'm, I need to, cause as I joked earlier about 
about being exhausted. It has been uh, a grind to get here. And I have learned, turned 40 recently, that uh, that it's really important to recharge the battery because I'm not 22 anymore. And because the NBA season is really long and it is a grind. Um, so next off season, hoping to get a little bit of a break because uh, I still haven't been down the shore. I mean, what kid oh, moves across the country? There. Wow. I know. I know. Still haven't been down the shore because I've just been working too hard. Just so. Study from the shore. That's what you combine the two. <laughs> is that it? Well, I mean, that's what I did. But then again, you don't want to see what my grades turned out like. I'm still hearing about it 20 years later from my parents. So, <laughs> Kate, Scott, we wish you the best of luck in your third year with the team. We can't wait to see the city continue to uh, adopt you as their own and uh, hope to get to continue to talk to you as you rise. Thank you, guys. Jason, Jeff, so great chatting with you today. Thanks for having me and go Sixers. See you soon. And safe travels. Thank you. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Let's welcome to the show, author of the new book, Tao of the Backup Catcher, playing baseball for the love of the game, New York Times bestseller, Tim Brown. Tim, congratulations on the book and thanks for the time today. I appreciate it, fellas. Thank you very much. Uh, we know the voice is struggling and a lot of interest in the book, so we know you're fighting through it, playing hurt. Uh, but I don't know if you could have had a better launch this week. The book comes out, and we see the other night the All-Star Game. There's a pretty much a lifetime backup catcher who has a career year. You know, guy was $20,000 out of Venezuela, non-tendered right. in 2019, hits the game-winning home run in the All-Star Game and wins the the MVP of the game. Talk about how that's sort of a metaphor for what this whole thing is that you have going on. There. Right, right. Well, not only that, you have a, a backup catcher catches a Yankee perfect game. You got a yeah, backup catcher catches the, the uh, combined no hitter for the Tigers the other day. Um, yeah, I, I'll admit, you know, it's a 300 page book and there's not a lot of all stars in there. So um, I, I was, I was sort of proud of my guy ideas. Um, you know, I, what I love about these guys and and your Philly guy Kratzy, um, chief among them, is the value they bring to a team in the 21 hours around the game in particular. I mean, obviously during the game they're doing their thing as well, but uh, you know, for me it, it's about who you are on your journey and who you are to other people and backup catchers have a lot of time on their hands. So they, they find ways to, um, uh, to help a team in, in, when they're not at the box score. You know, it, it's an interactive baseball or seam heads as we, as we call ourselves. Um, the backup catcher is always an interesting topic, but you've been writing about baseball for over a quarter century. Now, how did you choose this as a topic for a book? Well, I mean, you guys have been around ballparks and everything. I found even when I started in the late eighties and as I worked my way along, my favorite guy in every clubhouse was almost always the backup catcher. Um, they're, uh, humble. They are funny. They're accessible. 
they see the world in in ways that I think regular people see the world. And, you know, we talk about baseball as a game of failure. Nobody's failed more often than backup catchers. And most of them are hitting about 208. And I, I think as I sort of worked my way along, uh, I was thinking about, I've always liked those stories in the corner of the clubhouse uh, the at the end of the roster. And, uh, you, you know, the, the tell me a story thing, the people stories as the, the analytics age sort of left me behind a little bit. I, I just think I wasn't bright enough to figure these things out. And so I cling to those human stories about who we are and how we conduct ourselves and what scares us and what makes us happy. And so um, about five years ago, Eric Kratz and I had bumped into each other and uh, I had been lugging around this idea for uh, something along these lines for a while. What what could I write that might most represent how I see the game? And I thought he was perfect for the spine of this book, given the length of his career, given uh, his struggles, given 14 different organizations, given... 120 different transactions given where he was from the division three school uh you know sarah kratz i don't know if you guys have met sarah along the way at all but um she's an absolute stud and and basically the hero of this book and i just i don't know it just spoke to me at, at a time when a everything is boiled down to numbers and b we're all screaming at each other on social media and 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 all it, it just felt like a good time to put something like this out there. The intro says they're not merely backup catchers, but frontline people. Talk to us right. about how these people help everyone else have a career as basically the supporting character with their own preparation. Yeah, there there uh, a couple of things. I think first off, um, you know, because of the way their careers have gone, they're, they're typically what we call bounce guys, right? Um, and typically a bit older guys, been around. So they are helping, you know, they go down to the minor leagues, helping to raise the next generation of catchers, right? The next generation of ball players. They're helping to raise the next generation of coaches and managers as well. Um, guys who have not spent a lot of time or any time in the big leagues. And I think that's uh, particularly helpful. And again, I go, uh, the other part is I go back to my original thing about winning games in the 21 hours around the game. Uh, they become father figures, big brothers, priests, therapists, drinking buddies, whatever it takes to make the guy next to them a little bit better. And this is, you know, when you talk to guys like Theo Epstein, uh, who learned this lesson along the way, uh, on a 26-man roster, 25 guys fit the analytic analytical model perfectly right in in the gm's eyes it never works out that way but these are the 25 guys who when i push the numbers around and add it all up in the bottom this is how we're going to win the most games we can there's one guy who's not in that model who exists outside of it and that's the guy who sort of leads from behind who the manager doesn't have to worry about who can uh handle the day game after a night game who can handle a cranky pitcher who can put his arm 
arm around a guy who's 0 for 4 again and and isn't a pain in the ass to the manager. But the manager's got 25 of those. He doesn't need another one. So, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, they're all perfect and they all do the job exactly right. But I think the fact that 14 of the current managers uh, in baseball are backup catchers or served a reasonable amount of time doing that speaks to what these guys learned at 25, 35, 45 that uh, other players perhaps don't have time for or don't have the interest in. You know, it's interesting because what you're talking about with regard to the backup catcher not fitting the mold, people always, you know, here in Philadelphia, we have an all-star catcher. He wasn't this year, but JT Realmuto. And, and they had good catchers in the minors, young prospects. And people always wonder, why don't they bring up those prospects as the backup catcher? Here, instead of bringing up Marshawn and then trading Logan O'Hoppy, they, they brought in Garrett Stubbs, which people kind of went, why? But we've talked to Garrett Stubbs, and, and he fits exactly what you're talking about. I don't know if you've run across him, but, but he, he fits that you don't have to worry about him. And he's the good guy in the clubhouse. And he's the guy that comes up with the songs and, and can deal with the pitchers. What is it about that mentality that they're able to, to do that and survive so long in the major leagues? You know, that's such a great question because one of the interesting topics I tried to take on in the book is whether these guys are born or bred. Um, do you have to be the guy before you become the backup catcher or are you the backup catcher and therefore become the guy? And I think it probably it depends on the individual. Um, my guess is just from what little I know about Garrett, and I did see a lot of him during the postseason last year. He uh, obviously a great athlete. And, and I will, as an aside, um, you know, people complain about players who they think suck or whatever. <laughs> and I, I remember always reminding myself that the last guy on the worst roster in baseball probably has a street named after him somewhere in Ohio. <laughs> you know, the best athletes ever come out of there. Uh, but Garrett struck me as a guy who's just a great athlete and a really good human being, a guy who likes life uh, and that sort of thing. You know, maybe he's not a leader of a, a, a more veteran team. You know, Bryce Harper does not need a leader. Um but he is an energy guy. He is a guy that people like to hang out with, that like to talk to, like to laugh with. And I, again, this is you guys probably know him better than I do, but that was sort of my take on him was this is a good glue guy. Um, and he's fairly, what's he, about 30 now? Yeah. A little, I think a little younger than that, but yeah. And I think he grows into that leadership role, right? You know, you, you kick around long enough and, and I don't know if he's going to begin end his career with the Phillies, but uh, this is really important for him. And, and I've seen enough of him to know that that's a quality at bat. It doesn't always work out great. And there's a great conversation to be had about whether hitting 209, say, which is Eric Kratz's lifetime batting average, while playing once a week is not a borderline superhuman feat. <laughs> That's hard. Yeah. You know, you mentioned having a street named after you someplace. Eric came from a town of 5,000 people. He's only the second major league baseball player. So it's kind of that situation where what he came from and, and you talk about the preparation and we talk about on the field from the memorizing the scouting reports and being in the pitchers meetings and the hitters meetings, even when they're not playing. But there's a lot that comes through the book about pitchers as therapists, um, how to manage personalities off the field. There's a quote from Chris Jimenez. I always joke that 
legit backup catchers or three quarters psychologist and one quarter actual baseball player. Talk to us about how important backup catchers are on the mental side of the locker room. Well, I mean, if you've got the right one, right. You know, um, I think about, so, so there's, uh, I had a, a coach talk to me about, they had a bit of a younger, uh, backup catcher and every day at the end of the game, this young backup catcher would go to the food room and get a cheeseburger and fries and a Coke. That was his post game meal. And one day the coach pulled him aside and said, um, you know, as in your role, we would hope that you would be set an example. So you can have all the cheeseburgers you want away from the park, but why don't you rethink that when you're at the park? Um, <laughs> because people are looking to you in terms of, uh, you know, this is a guy who, and, and I can't even imagine how hard this is. You have to show up to the ballpark every day, knowing full well you're not going to play. Managers tell guys long, well ahead of time now uh, when they're playing and when they're not playing. And yet this guy shows up every single day having to expect to play, prepared to play, having gone through the scouting reports, having his body together, having his mind together. Uh, because if he does have to play, catchers just can't show up and play. And it, it doesn't work that way. And I, I always, I asked a lot of guys about like, okay, I understand how you can do that on day five and day 11 and day even 18. But what's that feel like on day 174 uh, where you have been doing this over and over and over again and it has never happened you have never played on a day you didn't think you were going to play and they said well you know on day 175 i might have to play so um i think that's all part of it and and to finish the previous story the guys started having salmon after uh after games uh, every day so uh that's i think that's who they are that you know this is the example they set there may not be yelling and screaming uh but they are living a lifestyle and setting an example that uh at least the good ones that maybe run through a clubhouse is, is that mental fortitude that they have to develop in the face of adversity of not doing the thing that they love most every day. The reason that they're able to be such good mentors, because they do bounce back and forth between the majors and the minors so much more than a lot of the other players on their team, you know, and, and, and the second part of that is while they're being a mentor, how hard is it for them to, to not have, they're, they're the psychologist for everybody else. Who's the psychologist for them? <laughs> well, it used to be Harvey Dorfman, I think. Um, <laughs> who had a little piece of everybody. I think they become their own psychologist. You know, it's about uh, practicing what you preach, right? Um, you know, and at the end of the day, I feel like uh, what they get very good at is being where their feet are. Um, you know, you're on this journey and who are you going to be on this journey? You know, I, I don't think a lot of these guys give up hope on becoming a number one uh, or returning to being a number one and making that money and having that uh, stability. But in the meantime, uh, I believe that, and, and I think this is why a lot of the backup catchers are a bit older uh, is because you come to a point of peace with where you are today. 
And I don't, I'm not sure you have that at 24 when you still think you're going to be the next Johnny bench or at 28, when you still think you'd be a number one catcher somewhere and you look around and you think I'm better than that guy and that guy and that guy. But at some point I was in double a or triple a and some coach or GM or roving guy decided that I was not a very good hitter. And then I stopped getting playing time. I stopped getting at bats. I started hitting 204 and this is where I am now. So those guys, I think still believe with the at-bats, they could be a really good big league um, catcher, at least a productive one. Uh, and in the book, it's, I, I talk, I don't know if you guys ever saw the documentary. I think it's called 10 feet from stardom about the backup singers. It's really good if you haven't yeah. seen it. Um, and I think about backup catchers as being 20 points from stardom uh, because, it, you know, if you hit 220, you're a backup catcher. If you hit 240, you're a borderline all-star. Um, and, and I don't know where those 20 points come from, but uh, in the meantime, they're hitting 220 and therefore have decided that this is the player that this team needs today you know in the book eric said after playing the game on its terms he was able to leave on his own terms i found it interesting you kind of started the book at the end of his journey where it was his retirement and reflecting both on the lessons that he learned from his dad crossed with the lessons he was trying to impart on his children as he was walking away can you just talk a little bit about that as the spine of the story there just in terms of the craps end of it or yeah just how that i mean i found it interesting that he was basically revisiting the wisdom that his father gave him and kind of imparting it on his children as he was moving on to the next step himself basically being a psychologist for his children just like he did for the players while dealing with his own kind of mortality in the game Right. I think some, some of the real beauty of of the Kratz story, <clears throat> sorry, and the relationship with Sarah and they had the kids so young was that it forced them to grow up um, and, and sort of take these things head on and think about the responsibilities of uh you know, having a family. And, and I think Eric, uh, you know, he was also 40 years old, uh, amazingly, um, was able to stay around the game for that long. And, and I, I don't know, I just, I, I feel like, uh, look, early in his career, he he fought the fight as, as hard as anybody. He was bitter. He was angry. He nearly quit several times. He was probably told to quit more often than that. And, uh, if if you just leave that stuff there and and it doesn't become part of of your learning experience and 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 where you arrive we're talking about this journey where you arrive at the end of this particular journey um then it's all been meaningless and i think if you don't hand it to your your boys eric is now coaching the high school team that he played for and his son is on that team and so it just keeps going round and round and, and i think that um you know, by the time Eric walked off that field in San Diego, uh, to your point, I think he was ready to impart that wisdom on his own children. And similar to the way his dad would say, work like somebody's watching. You know, Tim, from the moment that I saw the just even the title of your book, I couldn't help thinking about how many catchers must emulate themselves or at least be able to relate to Bull Durham. <laughs> uh, have you run across that with catchers is is them being able to relate to to that character more than any character in a movie 
it's funny you bring it up such a romantic version of it right right um and i'll be honest with you when i sat down to write this book i thought i am not going there i said other people can draw the conclusions it's too easy um everyone's gonna go there on their own anyway and then i think somewhere right in the middle of it joe madden dropped a a a really good what i thought was a really good quote with bull durham right in the middle of it and i said you know what all right I'll, i'll give i'll give joe the one the one hat tip to to bull durham um, but yeah, I mean, I think they relate to him. I think they feel like they were uh, sort of immortalized, uh, in this very romantic way that, uh, uh, that they are more than just, uh, 197 guy. Who's not the last man on the roster that everybody groans when they're announced in the lineup every night, uh, that they're, uh, uh, there's value there that not everyone can see. You know, Tim, before we let you go, you've, you've, this is not your first radio. This is not your first book. You've been writing about baseball for a long time. Uh, I was particularly inter- interested in, in your, your book with Jim Abbott or Jeff, about Jim Abbott. Mm-hmm. What was it like to, to cover and, and learn about Jim Abbott? And for those, the people that don't know him, which they should, if you know, baseball is this was a guy who was born without, without one hand and was able to become a major league pitcher and and pitch a no hitter. I think what I took away from that was um, a guy who's so comfortable in his skin, Uh, a guy who really fought the fight for a long time. Um, You know, the, the, the anecdote that I go back to a lot is he really wanted to be judged as a ball player, as a pitcher. And it just wasn't possible for a long time, um, you know, at Michigan, uh, going down and beating Cuba, winning a gold medal, skipping the minor leagues entirely and going into the Angels rotation. It was it was always about, wow, look at this one-handed pitcher go. Um, and then for whatever reason, he lost the bite on the cutter. He lost some velocity, uh, you know, like it happens to some pitchers and there was no real explanation, but he found at the end that he was being judged as merely a pitcher when he was a bad pitcher, when he was getting hit. And it was a really sort of a lesson for him about how life works um, you know, and how quickly it can turn. And it was really difficult for him. And I think that, uh, what I enjoyed about it was, uh, fully understanding. He never wanted to do a book when he was playing. It took him a long time to come around to the notion of it. Uh, he called me out of the blue and said, uh, years, years later after he was done playing and said, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to tell my story. And I said, why, what, what, what's, what's important to you about it? And, and he said, I want to thank my parents and I want to tell my daughters, my story. And, and that's Jim Abbott, you know, it's not, it wasn't ever like, cause I need money or, you know, I, I'm feeling lonely and I haven't been loved in a long time or whatever. It was purely, uh, I just want to have this on the record. 
Well, this is another book about the twists and turns of life uh, from a different perspective behind the plate. The book is Tao of the Backup Catcher, playing baseball for the love of the game. Tim, thank you so much for the time. Best of luck with the book, and we hope to get to talk to you again sometime. Appreciate it, fellas. Anytime and next time I have. I have the prettiest little voice. All right, so we're going to hold you to that. Next time we expect full voice. I got the Louis Armstrong going today, but, uh, you know, we'll work it We out. won't ask you to sing What a Wonderful World. How's that? <laughs> I'll let you recover so you're not playing hurt next time. Thanks so much, Tim. Have a great day. What a fun book, Jeff. But like I said to him at the start of the interview, could they have planned it any more perfect with the way the All-Star game broke out this week? I'm still, you know, I don't know what I'm more surprised by. I'm not the the fact that a backup catcher won the MVP of the All-Star game or that a Colorado Rocky was actually in the All-Star game. (laughs) You you told me that the other day. Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of shocked by it. I do think, I don't know about you with the all-star game they i think they just got to go back to wearing their own hats and jerseys yes i just think it was more fun doing it you, you every one team wear all the roads and the other one wear the homes it's i just think it's so much better i know they want to sell an extra jersey then make the jersey wear them in batting practice or in the home run derby or whatever sell them online but let's go back to, to being able to easily identify our guys so i'm going to ask you a more controversial question because this was the lowest rated game in oh years. lord here he goes with the ratings. Do they need to change from NL versus AL to US versus the world? No. They keep no. the format as No. Is. Do you really think that's going to change the ratings in an all-star game? I don't know if people would be more interested. I, I don't think there's a differentiation between NL and AL anymore. They play each other so much. It used to be a special thing to see these guys know, play in the all-star game. It's not special anymore. They play know, each other who, every but day. But who cares? But who cares? Like, wh- why would you care more if it's the US? versus the world oh, I'm not or saying North I America would. versus whatever. I mean, it just, it doesn't matter. You're splitting up the teams. Nobody's walk. Nobody at this point is, I know there are people that say we got to get back to the all-star game, meaning something. It doesn't mean anything. It's just fun. It is a chance for individuals to shine. That's what it is. The problem is in an all-star game, the only individuals that usually shine are the pitchers. So it, it, you don't have high scoring all-star games for the most part. It, it, that that would be something that I'd like to find a way to do more. I want to see more home runs in the actual game as opposed to just in the home run derby. They didn't have the pitch clock in the all-star game, Jeff. Yeah, and I know. And, and, and now for some reason, the Players Association is complaining that they want to change the rule that apparently 80 to 85 percent of the players are now used to and like they want to change it for the playoffs. Now, I, I will readily admit it will be beneficial to the Phillies if they get an extra couple seconds for the pitch clock because Kimbrell apparently can't count to whatever number. And Aaron, Aaron Nola gets concerned when he gets on with the pitch clock. Look, uh, I, I, I think it's legitimate conversation about letting the game breathe in the postseason a little bit more and I wouldn't be surprised if they relax it a little bit but as we head into the second half here I mean we only got a couple minutes left we had so much talk with our interviews looks like the Phillies are going to bring up one of their really young prospects to fill a spot what do you think of what the Phils are doing Jeff what's the downside okay so let's assume let's tell our listeners what we're doing what they're doing Right, I'll, I'll do that. So, for, first of all, let's assume that Bryce Harper is going to first base. If that works and he's healthy enough to go to first base, that means Schwarber is off the grass. He is in the dugout except to swing a bat and bat 183 and hit 40 home runs. 
great. If they're not taking him out of the lineup, I've given up on that. But they want to bring up a, a guy who's a five-tool guy. I remember we talked, was it last year or the year before, we talked to uh, somebody from the MLB network about him, about what a five-tool athlete that this guy could be. And he is raking, but he's raking in double A, and it's Rojas. And they are going to bring him straight from double A up to the majors. Now, I don't if that's true, because they haven't actually officially announced it, the question is going to be, are they going to plug him right in in left field? And is he going to be the everyday? I would give him the chance. I don't think you have anything to lose. You don't have anybody. Is Pache going to be your other guy? I, I, I don't know, but he's played center field. That's what I don't understand. Rojas so? hasn't been a left fielder. So are they moving Marsh or Pache to left and putting Rojas in center? I'm not opposed no, 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 to what pa- they're doing. No, pa- Pache, in my mind, would remain the fourth outfielder. Uh, but I, what I would do is I would not put the pressure on Rojas to play center field. You'd put him. I would left. want him for his bat. So you put him in left, and then you have Marsh remains in center, and you have Castellanos in right. You know, you and talk- I think you've automatically improved everything. Plus, you have the improvement, I think, that Harper's going to, as he gets better, he's going to develop the power. He already has the hitting. He already has the timing. It's not like he's batting 183 like somebody else. You talk about five tools. He's hitting 306 with 320 at-bats, nine home runs, and 45 RBIs, 30 stolen bases, Jeff. So it puts a little pressure on the pitchers on the base pads, too, if he's out there playing. It's a question of whether the pitching's going to hold up, too. I mean, that's... well, that, that's the big concern. So then the question becomes is, what do you do as you get closer to the trade deadline? And I think what the Phillies need to do as they get closer to the trade line deadline is get a back-of-the-rotation starter who can also fill in for injuries and who also will be a good bullpen piece if you get to the playoffs. I don't think – they don't have the stuff to go out and get a front-line starter right now pitching. Even if – even if, and I would say Bohm should not be untouchable. Bohm is still – I understand that he's contributing. I understand his RBIs, but Bohm is never going to develop into the first round pick that we all thought that he was going to be. So I, I, I think you have replacements there that are serviceable, but if you can get a front line starter, then I would do it. If you can get a number three starter, I would even do it. Wow. Hitting is not the problem. We're going to see what they're going to do. That's going to be the last word for this week, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.